Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Carter Williams, who's the co-founder and managing partner of Iselic Fund, a venture capital fund that invests in innovative companies that push humanity forward. Over Carter's career, he has directly managed investments of more than $600 million in early stage ventures. Carter has done his MBA from MIT Sloan School and has done his bachelor's in mechanical engineering. Welcome to, sh- welcome to the show, Carter. Hi, thank you very much. Awesome. So, you know, um, uh, I was, you know, I was interested to know how did you get into this world of startups and venture capital and how was your childhood experience while you while you're growing up? Yeah, so it's a uh, early on, I think I almost electrocuted myself uh, when I was about three, taking a wall socket apart. So I've always sort of been in the uh, in the realm of technology uh, early on uh, building building things as a kid. I went to engineering school at RPI. I, from there, ended up at McDonnell Douglas building fighter aircraft in the early days of Six Sigma and Lean and was very involved in really some of the most cutting edge work, both on the F-18 program, C-17 program, a lot of aerospace. And that's always a very challenging area where you can really push the envelope. I went back from my MBA at uh, MIT Sloan and concentrated on technology uh, investing and R&D management. And, and that led me back into what then was Boeing, which had, Boeing had bought McDonnell Douglas and was part of PhantomWorks and Boeing, which focused on the far, far, far side of the of really technology that still is not visible today to practical check technology in space and, uh, and uh, commercial aircraft and military and, and all those different types of systems. So that was a great, great incubator. Uh, while I was at Boeing, I was both involved in R&D strategy. So where should Boeing invest all of its research and development dollars every year? And then, and then we evolved that into the ventures group, uh, which was focused on how do we work outside with startups to advance the ball in technology and in aerospace so we were talking about things like SpaceX and 2000. Now we, as a firm, we didn't figure out how to get out of our own way, but the idea of like commercial space in, in a very open entrepreneurial way was something when I was at Boeing, we were working on as early as 2000. And so I've been involved in those in various ways. I was working for the CTO who retired in 2004. And I used that opportunity to say, you know, maybe it's time to leave. And I uh, got involved in one of the early IoT companies that was focused on building controls. And we built a company named GridLogics, which I uh, would monitor thousands of buildings and figure out what was right or wrong in terms of how they were operating on their, their energy systems. And so we could reduce their energy usage by about 20%. Uh, we grew that company and sold it to Johnson Controls in uh, 2008 when the stock market was crashing. Uh, it's always good to exit for cash at, at that point, but that became Johnson Controls Panoptics system. Uh, and then the whole IoT market sort of exploded after that. And uh, since then, I've been involved in various startups as an advisor and such, and really got into a point where I really didn't need to work, but we got to a point where I was, I've spent my entire career around technology in various ways and when it's succeeded and when it's failed. 
And so we started iSelect uh, to, to really address the fact that when you're outside of Silicon Valley, outside of New York, access to capital is a challenge, access to talent, access to early adopter customers is a little murky. And we started iSelect as a, uh, a framework to try to bring more capital to the whole rest of the country. And now we invest overseas too now. So to other areas to you know bring smart capital into those areas to help help grow. We've concentrated more around the, the food and health space, but it really, I'm a technology, I'm, I'm more of a, I'm less of a VC and more of a entrepreneur technology guy. There are other people on me on our team that are a little bit more, you know, VC finance, like, okay. but my, my brain is always uh, spread across the framework of how can we apply technology in really novel ways to solve big problems and, and come up with better answers. Interesting. And, um, uh, you, you know, what, what are the thesis for Isolate Fund, you know, before, before uh, the call, we were talking about food and agriculture and healthcare, uh, you know, how did you come to, you know, focus on this particular thesis? Maybe, you know, if you could elaborate more on that. Yeah. So we, uh, sometimes I say we're two things at once. So thing one is, Food, food is health, food agriculture. Thing two is uh, we're fintech startup. So covering fin, thing two is we are an open-ended evergreen fund. We've got 500 LPs. Uh, we, we raise capital from institutional investors, from family offices, from uh, RIAs. We do that consistently. We're always adding to our fund. Uh, the fund never closes. We're always fund one. And so there's a whole bunch of craziness in reshaping venture in that way. Um, Sequoia is sort of moving to that model. So we, we sort of were ahead of the game. They're a lot bigger than us, but, but there's a shift going on in venture capital there in terms of how capital is brought together that we, that we sort of started with the fund. Putting that aside, I, you know, to do venture capital well, you, I, I personally think you got to be close to customers. We were founded in the St. Louis area. Uh, St. Louis is extraordinarily strong, probably number one in the world in ag innovation and probably in the top 10 in healthcare. And so uh, we just have a natural ecosystem around us of people who've been both customers of that problem and people who've been solving the problem out of WashU, out of Monsanto, out of a regional area called the, the Danforth Plant Life Science Center. And so we concentrated as we started the fund and we were we were sort of solving two problems. How do we, well, how do we bring capital to some less well-served markets? And then what sectors are we going to concentrate in? It just sort of naturally evolved in this sort of uh, health, health food area. There's also a great chart that's been shared on the internet recently that out of uh, Mark Pryor, uh, um, not Mark Pryor, I can't remember Mark's last name, but uh, out of AEI about, where are we seeing inflationary and deflationary forces? So certainly Silicon Valley's done a great job of bringing down the cost of tech-related things, but areas like education, food, healthcare still sees a lot of inflationary forces. As a fund, we, we're really more interested in those, those, uh, those places where costs are going up. Innovation is a deflationary force. And so the first areas we're concentrating are around ag, agriculture and healthcare. And then when, in time, as we continue to grow, we might start to wander into some other areas uh, that have seen sort of uh, inflationary forces to try to turn those around. 
Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, Ice Lake Fund is, is like a, like a VC fund, but, uh, but, you know, is there a, like a crowdfunding attributes also to, to the fund and how do you, how do you select the investors uh, and how do you select the startups uh, uh, for, for this particular, uh, for, for the platform that you've built? Yeah, so we, uh, what we've done on the platform side is we've used the provisions of the crowdfunding laws to create a very open fund structure, but we created an institutional framework around it. So our concern was that some of the early crowdfunding efforts were, here's a deal, no one's going to do any diligence, you know, make your own decisions, invest, and you know, here's an SPV and pull things together in some particular way. What we believe is that there are a set of investors that want to invest that have not traditionally done venture capital, and they don't have time to do the diligence. So they want, we differ from some of the crowdfunding platforms, and internally, we look like a venture firm. We have associates that are digging in down the diligence. Everything we do looks exactly like a venture fund in terms of the depth the scope of the diligence, uh, our participation in the companies, whether we sit on the boards or not, all of that uh, we do. And so we're different from some of the crowdfunding platforms in that way. The other thing is, is we've institutionalized the fundraising process. So we are registered in particular ways that are necessary to go into broker dealers and financial advisors. And we have licensed people that are salespeople out of places like Goldman Sachs that reach into those communities. Uh, we are working with uh, large family offices that, um, you know, we've got one family office that has more than 30 million, 30 billion in assets that really doesn't do much venture. And so they're doing it through us because they like the open-ended fund structure. And the, what, what, the way in which people do invest with us is they, they, it might be that they say, um, you know, we would like to invest a million dollars invested in your next 25 companies. But then if there's a follow-on round, we want to relook at that. And then when they see that follow-on round, they might write a $2 million check. And so we've created the capability for a lot of family offices to have a high-quality venture-like deep analysis uh, and give them some flexibility uh, because they don't really like being committed to long funds. They don't – a lot of larger capital providers that really don't like – Right. They go to a venture fund. The venture fund says, you got to invest $5 million. We're going to have capital calls. Once you make this decision, you got to stick with it. You can't reverse your decision. Our approach is we work with those people. They may commit $5 million. They might be intending to invest $5 million. But if we blow it along the way and lose their trust, they don't have to keep investing. And so that creates just a, a more willingness on their part to actually invest. And so it's been a, it's sort of a different kind of model. Uh, and we think... As we think about how venture capital scales, there's like $60 trillion of high net worth assets in the United States, 450 billion of which is in venture capital. That's like 70 base, that's nothing. Yeah. That's, that's nothing. Yale has 18% of its portfolio allocated to venture. And most, the United States has like 70 basis points of its capital allocated to venture capital. And venture capital is one of the most powerful forces for solving tough problems. And so practically what we're trying to do is I, I want to see that number go to like 2 trillion. 
in venture capital. I mean, if we take everything that's been done in venture capital, like around uh, automotive and telecom and, and such, and then say, let's apply that to healthcare in a really effective way, or let's apply that to food, or let's apply that to education. I mean, I, uh, you should be able to bring those prices down and really solve problems. So, you know, if people ate better, we wouldn't have had so many people die from COVID. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, $3 trillion uh, is like, what, 3%? Uh, oh, sorry, $2 trillion is like 3% of the, of the you know, entire uh, uh, investment uh, capacity for, for, for U.S., right? Yeah, I think the, well, I, U.S., overall U.S. investment, I don't know how to answer that question. I think overall U.S. investment is, I can't remember the number. I should know that number. But like hedge funds are probably $2 trillion. And, and uh, but I've done some calculations and, and uh, around the idea that if we generally were deploying about $2 trillion, if we had $2 trillion in venture capital, the spinoff of that should drive GDP pretty consistently above 3%. And once we're above 3% GDP in this country, every problem that shows up in DC is a lot easier to solve because we because the amount of growth that we would be seeing. And so on a macro standpoint, we're looking at that. On a micro standpoint, when we look at food as health, not even mi- micro, we the numbers are we spend about 1.7 trillion on food in the United States. We spend about 1.9 trillion on the associated healthcare costs related to poor nutrition. Some of that's direct. Someone's got diabetes. Some of it's indirect. People dying earlier, uh, not being able to be productive. Uh, when we look at that, we see that as a 3.6 trillion dollar market around nutrition. And and sometimes I, I I sort of say you know the grocery stores should be taking market share from from hospitals. Yeah, hospitals are like sitting there trying to solve the problem after it's been caused. But, you know, I started my career in lean, doing lean manufacturing type things on production lines. And we made it so that we could build aircraft better by fixing the design process up front. And, and so if we can deliver food that's better for you and cheaper, uh, then people will make the better decisions and and their diet will get into a position that reduces the amount of uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity. When we look at it globally, uh, even if you don't care about the healthcare implications, and if you don't care about sustainability, and you don't care about the environment, put that all aside. Just globally, uh, their economies through the rest of the world are growing. Uh, when they grow, more people move into the middle class. Yeah. Uh, there are 3 billion people supposed to move in the middle class by 2050. When people move in the middle class, they want more protein. Now, that's typically meat-based protein. Um, but I think we said early on you grew up in India. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, India's got, like, I, I don't understand it as well, but, uh, you know, there are kids in India that cheat on meat by eating Impossible Burger. It's like it's I can have meat, but culturally it's, it, so I get the meat taste, but I'm not violating sort of some principles that maybe I, you know, on animals. We, so we, when we think about the global shift that's going on, 
there's a desire for more protein for that higher quality food, but that's not decided that that's going to be animal base. And, and what's happening in the protein world is we're delivering much higher quality protein at a higher production level that plant-based meats will start becoming cheaper than animal-based meats. And in that process, whether it's in South Korea having a plant-based meat some, uh, substitute in dumplings or, you know, there are a whole bunch of different things that are going to go on here that, that we, don't even, we don't even fully understand, but from a pressure standpoint, if 3 billion people move into the middle class globally by 2050, using current food systems, we anticipate that that is going to double demand for protein globally. Uh, there is not enough farmland in production to meet that demand. And so there's a giant, just system-wide macro pressure to try to boost the amount of protein production and I, uh, we need to do that more efficiently because to get a pound of meat out of a cow, you got to stick 1.7 pounds of protein into that cow from soy or from, from, from some type of protein source. And it's just not efficient. And so there's a huge reconciliation going on there that, you know, if you don't care about health, you don't care about the environment, those aren't important things. Just those giant macro pressures are create a huge economic opportunity to bring efficiency to the market. That's all tech enabled. It's, it's not going to be more farms. It's going to be indoor farming. It's going to be uh, better genetics. It's going to be um, uh, better satellite systems detecting insects on crops using hyperspectral imaging and then applying drones that have precision uh, sprays on them that then spray that particular area with a engineered biologic uh, that is safe for the environment um, and is tuned to that type of crop and that type of insect in that area. I mean, it's just a, the level of sophistication is, it's like drug development. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh if if you talk about you know investing into into startups uh how, how do you analyze the the current seed market you know there've been uh there've been companies like uh there've been vc firms like tiger uh, and uh you know anderson horowitz who are deploying a lot of capital in, into the market but uh, uh but you know uh, how, how how do you feel about the 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 market with this with the sort of current uh, you know, fund deployment, which is happening, uh, where their timelines have become really compressed uh, and with the record number of deals happening and the record number of fund, uh, which has been deployed in last year, uh, do you think it's, it's a cause of worry or do you think, you know, it's something which is going to be accelerated because of maybe the remote conditions that we're working in? Yeah, I think, I, I think of it in two fronts. Um, I have often thought, you know, you go, you go back to, uh, let's go back to lean manufacturing, they, the sort of craft industry. 
the venture industry has been a craft industry for way too long. Um, there's reasons to have scale to it. Uh, I've always been impressed with Andreessen's got more of a corporate structure to how they're, they're doing it, in which there are people that specialize in aspects of what's being done. And, and really, I've always had a lot of respect for their ability to sort of understand the intricacies of, of what's going on in that market. And so my just natural inclination is, is it's going to become a scaled production, um, precision, data-driven process. And I think ultimately that's a good thing, especially if you, if, as I do, that believe that innovation is a deflationary force, innovation will accelerate things. I'm happy because I Tiger uh, A16Z aren't in my market. <laughs> so I, I, we never, we've done like two deals with Andreessen. Um, none of them are touching the agriculture market. I, even on healthcare areas that we're focused in, none of them are really touching it. Uh, so the, and that's our healthcare is a little bit more focused around functional medicine. Uh, so I don't know when they are going to show up, if they're going to show up, but I will say that in, in the area that we are, there are probably about five firms that really have the domain expertise, really have it. And uh, we've got a lot of strong relationships with uh, the ecosystem. You know, we, for example, we're close to, farmers that control about 4 million acres of farmland. And that builds a, what does every startup need? They need a early adopter customer. And so we, we've concentrated on that. And so I would expect what's going to happen is, is once, you know, when I look at Silicon Valley and I have a tremendous respect for everything that it's, that it's done in areas like, uh, in, in many of the companies that have been created, there's an intricacy to what we're doing that's a bit more capital intensive. There's more asset-based lending that needs to come in. The, the corporate structure and how you scale it is different. And my guess is what we're going to see is we're going to see some of the best talent who's been investing in sort of the Silicon Valley model merge in with us who are some of the early innovators in the ag tech model. And then we're going to merge that together to bring scale. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but but uh, it'll probably happen in the next couple of years. But I, I welcome it. I, it's got maybe hurt a little bit in that process, but, but we've, we've been in this market early and we've, you know, we've looked at easily 3,500 deals, been doing since 2014. Uh, and we just have a whole bunch of connections that I think as, as more scale comes in, we can bring the best practices of both together to, to, to make a difference. I understand. And, you know, uh... Uh, the the market uh, stock market has really crashed. You know, most of the especially uh, stocks like Peloton and a lot of tech stocks have really taken a beating. A lot of cryptocurrencies have uh, have also gone down. Uh, how, how do you how do you calm your mind and you know prevent worry and fear when markets crash and uh, and you know what uh, what have you learned you know over the years especially with a two thousand eight subprime and some and and the two thousand crash. And even before that, uh, you know, what, what, how should people look at, uh, you know, assessing the risk and the returns, uh, especially in these times? Yeah, I think that if you've been through these cycles, you, you know that you survive them. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that the truth of really great companies is if you really sit down with the CEOs of those great companies and maybe get them to drink a little bit or open up a little bit, it's really the worst of times and their ability to get through the worst of times that mattered more to their success than that they were brilliant to begin with. 
Um, I then, one exercise, and I do this, we did this when one of our companies went public. I, I took the picture, if you, if you pull up on Yahoo or Google or something, uh, Amazon's stock price from the beginning till now. I, it was flat on that chart. It's pretty flat from 96 through, uh, 2011. And then it starts to, to peak up. So I, I take that chart and I sent it to him. And then I took every single one of, uh, Jeff Bezos's shareholder letters since he's been public. And if you read every one of his shareholder letters, he never kept it a secret. He, from early on, he basically said in his telegraph exactly what he's going to do. And, and either people didn't believe it or they didn't read them. So I sent that to the, our CEO and a company we took public and said, you, you need to keep these two things in mind. You know, keep telling people your story. Uh, and then also recognize that it, there's still a lot of effort, even after you go public, to get it right if you're going to really do something profound. And I think that that the only thing I would say that gives me anxiety is, is there a way, is, is there an opportunity cost to making it happen quicker? Is there something you didn't do that you could have done to explain to people quicker? But one of the challenges I've found in the public markets, especially in our area, is I talk to public fund guys or girls and uh, like, yeah, we're, I'm responsible for our ag tech investments. I'm okay. And it's like, yeah, and I know a farmer. It's like, you know, a farmer. It's like, yeah, I met a farmer. They, they own, a they, they herd cattle. It's like, that's a rancher. That's not a farmer. <laughs> and what we've sort of learned is, is that a lot of the public market investors still don't really understand the opportunity here. And so the other thing that sort of concerns me is in the case that we do have these downdrafts and, and it affects our ability to monetize investments or to, to get more capital in the capital markets to take it to the next step how much of that is is that the the people on the capital side you know their interpretation of what's going on in this market is reading an annual report from Bungie instead of realizing the the opportunity that's in front of us so um i don't down drafts don't bug, bug me what bugs me is people not realizing that there's opportunity and arbitrage at that point and and what can i do to help educate them um and, and so that's that's probably my anxiety is, you know, can I, can we tell the story better or help educate people more quickly, which is in part why we like to have conversations like this is it's a, it's a fascinating area. You know, I've worked at, there's stuff I worked on in Boeing in 2000. That's still not public. That's pretty wicked cool. So, you know, the, all this UAS stuff doesn't shock me. Uh, the stuff that, that fighter pilot was watching and you know, that, that kind of stuff doesn't shock me that much. I, uh, but then I look at ag tech and people are like ag tech's a bunch of hasty guys out in the field doing stuff. And, and when I look at like, we're going to use UAVs to deal with fertilizer and crop protection, and we're going to apply it driven by hyperspectral imaging. And, you know, it's the same, it's the same thing as uh, the most advanced aerospace stuff that we did. And, you know, I see that maybe other people don't see it yet, but it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. No, interesting. You talked about Jeff Bezos. I think uh, it's a fascinating story from 96 to 2011, um, 17 years, you know, he's been putting out uh, the new, the, uh, about his annual reports. And, you know, uh, I, I think for a very long time, he ignored the investors and he just doubled down uh, investing into, into the growth of the company. 
uh, and I think I think it he's one of the uh, you know fascinating leaders uh, in the in this era. But uh, but I I wanted to wanted to understand uh, you know what were some of the biggest misses when it comes to investing for you, and you know it does it impact your style of investing because uh, you know o- over such a long period i'm sure that there were some investments which where you did not put in the money is like your anti portfolio but but does it uh, does it worry you and does it really impact your style of investing going forward yeah i think it um it it educates you and changes your perception of risk and opportunity costs. And, uh, you know, I have certainly, my perspective, uh, I'm psychotic in this. I go back and forth from sort of a Y Combinator, broad portfolio deployment and create optionality versus really understand the market and perceive, perceive this is the one. And I would say that, you know, I have been an entrepreneur and have been in near-death experiences with startups and uh, have somehow been blessed at that moment in time with something that saved us. Maybe uh, luck honors the well-prepared. Um, uh, and so I go back and forth between if there's a surprise in the marketplace and a miss, I really just put it back into a learning uh, to sort of say, try not to make this mistake again. Um, but there's a temporal component where these things just keep shifting. So what, you know, that lesson learned that you missed then is not applicable again, because I was like a once in a lifetime combination. Our responsibility as venture investors is to give people a diversified pool of investment and manage that risk. Uh, and so, sure, I'd love to have more unicorns in my life. Uh, but our responsibility in terms of our LPs is to make sure that we give them a, you know, a 19% IRR. Um, so it's not just looking for the, the wins. So I'm not sure I've got a good answer for you. You got to take success, failure, learn from it, move forward. I do not think it is possible to come up with the perfect data bot that tells you exactly what to invest in. There's, yeah. there is, Anybody who's been an entrepreneur knows that they're telling the story of their success because things happen to line up at the right moment at the right time where they never told anyone public that they were about to fail, but they knew they were. <laughs> and, and somehow that fell into place I uh, through maybe good skill, maybe not, but it fell in the right place. And the person who didn't pull that off uh, is lost in the in time. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you yeah. You know, you you can never know what's going to work out. But I really like how Sequoia, you know, really puts their head down. Like from I think from nineteen seventies, they've just been, uh, you know, focusing on just investing to the best of the founders and the same work ethic. Um, I think it was Jason Calican in his podcast where he talked about that. You know, uh, 
lot of lot of lot of investors you know quit after 10 years once they have a bit of a success but uh, but uh, maybe maybe there's a playbook maybe there's not but interesting uh, interesting insight from you um and kada quickly want to do the top 3 what's your favorite business book my favorite business book um mostly anything by tyler cohen um any any so I, book in particular well i just all tyler's writings i i pay have influenced me i in a positive way i and i uh, nathan and tabs books have all influenced me i'm a real optionality kind of guy um the other one was a book written called uh by bill danforth's father and i should have thought about this ahead of time um which was a book written in the 50s about had a behave well in business and i uh, i wish i could remember the title of it but it's a simple book is about 40 pages long um purina when it was created was one of the first companies to do an esop in the 50s and i and that book was just one that was about proper business practice and grace and it uh, given how successful the danforths were and purina was at the time it just was a a period of i uh, just good behavior uh, it's called how to behave well in business is it uh, do you remember the name i uh, what did you say what was the name uh, how to behave well in business now uh, let's see if i can find it while you're asking your questions here i'll see if i uh, it's a bill i is it all the bill is it uh bill danforth i i dare you i dare you by william danforth oh okay so it's, it's a very old book i think it was originally written in uh, let's see what amazon says here it's been republished a few times but it's uh Oh, it doesn't say when it was originally published, but it was back in the 50s. It's just a it's just sort of reminds you a little bit of just good practice. None of it none of it would be a shock, but it just simplifies, you know, how you should be in business. Yeah. So uh I think I've done close to two two uh 230 or podcasts. I think this is the first uh book which is different from say hard things about hard things. That's the most preferred book out there. Um yeah. I'm definitely going to have a look and, you know, read it myself. uh and you know if you could go back in time when you started iselect fund what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently they do differently or yeah that- Any, yeah anything you would have focused one thing you would have focused on or you know if you could go back if you uh, would do anything differently yeah i think deepening the storytelling about our mission you know i think that the when i talk to our employees and i uh, our investors we've got a great set of people around us and whenever we've run into trouble they they have sort of said look you're on the right path you're going after the right vision and i think if i could figure out how to tell that story more broadly to speed up what we're doing i think that we're you know sometimes i there's a book written by um oh what the hell is the name of the guy who wrote it bill um it was a book on on all the startups that have gotten bigger than a billion and i 
uh, and he and he basically observed that that virtually all of them, when they got into about twenty million in valuation, the time period to go from twenty million in valuation to a billion was seven years plus or minus one. But the time period to go from zero to twenty million ranged from one year to twenty years. Blueprint to a a billion. It's the name of the book. And when I think about it, could I tell the story better? Could I help people understand? Can I learn more from the people who have bought our product and understand how to communicate that to other people? Because I I have this anxiety of how to get to two trillion. And, And I'm pretty sure how to get there. But speeding it up. And, and telling the story in a way to get more people excited. I think I just the notion of we could be running at three and a half percent GDP, that we could be solving problems with entrepreneurial vigor. If we could just figure out how to pe- get people to rethink how they deploy capital. And that, that keeps me awake at night a lot of times when we, when we get into trouble. Um, it's an important point that I go back to as our anchor point. I, uh, to try to simplify the challenge. And, and it's something that I just feel like it's an opportunity cost of, of could we tell the story better? I think it's super interesting and uh, a re- relevant book that you talk about, Blueprint to a Billion. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, do you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, so I've got, I, I'm a little bit crazy on that one. I love reading and Mark Andreessen has just gone nuts recently with his posts. So I've been following a lot of that Twitter um, I just, I, I, and I'll give you the link for a Substack that I did recently on, which was an amalgamation written by um, another Substack guy uh, around the new industrialists. And there's a crowd of uh, really smart young people, many of them graduated from GMU, that have been focused on this progress movement. And how can we really think about the fusion of policy? and innovation in a way to really energize the entrepreneurial spirit broadly. And there are about five or six uh, people that are working really hard, that are on Twitter, that are very thoughtful. Economics Twitter is very interesting. And, and they're really doing a very good job of pointing out opportunities where we could do something different in energy and, and policy and uh, immigration and and they're very thoughtful, balanced perspectives. And so I paid a lot of attention to that. And then I, uh, through that process I've created, and we do this on Signal, I've created, I've got about 40 people that I have an ongoing conversation with in Signal, where it's all of us having our crazy ideas on on various things. And they're, they're all different sorts of people Signal is sort of a nice place for me to have that conversation because you can make the messages go away. So if you have a crazy idea, you don't have to worry about them ending up somewhere. Uh, But, but that is a little bit of what I've curated to try to, I challenge my thinking and such. Um, But uh, there's a, there's a vein within Twitter that's really thinking very hard in this progress movement. Uh, and as I said, I, I sort of summarized them in a Substack post recently that I'll send you if, if other people want to get access to that. Sure, you know, we'll have to you know, put it on, on the show notes. Carlo, um, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Iselect Fund? Yeah, so it's very easy. You can, on Twitter, I'm jcarterwil, and my email is cwilliams at iselectfund.com. 
And uh, my mobile number is 314-517-7525. And, you know, easier to text me or, or use that number to get me on signal. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I think asynchronously better than I do synchronously. So, but, but feel free, free to reach out or text me on that. And always, always interested in learning and meeting new people. Sure. No, I think that sounds great. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Carla, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com. <laughs>